Hello and welcome to From Kind, the podcast. Today's guest is a psychotherapist, author of two books, 15 Minute Parenting 0 to 7, and now 8 to 12 years. And she's a mum of one. It's Joanna Fortune. Hello, Joanna. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? I'm good. Um, we were having a little chat there off mic just before we were recording about um, sleep because it's in the evening time and your little one is asleep and my one is going to sleep and we're having a chat I was very envious of you um, and your early bedtime for your daughter oh it's only because her day is so non-stop that I literally think she runs out of steam to the point that she's about to fall over and it just happens to be at that time but it's also a reflection on that she wakes up in the middle of a sentence and goes to sleep in the middle of a sentence and never stops in between those two points so I think she's worn herself out I'm not going to take any kind of credit for that being some serene you know magic I have over bedtime not at all the child just wears herself out all day yeah I can yeah Alice is pretty active um and when that kind of meets her goes she doesn't really stop does she and you're like no no she's like an energizer bunny um so we're still in that. We still have that one to three nap and then she goes down to sleep about, you know, the evening routine starts about was quarter seven and she's asleep ideally for eight o'clock. Yeah, um, that's pretty good. And especially with the nap. It's just OK. We, yeah, we lost our nap during this whole COVID uh, time period, which is, you know, not the most opportune time to lose a nap when you desperately need that break in the middle of the day to get some work done but I think that's also contributed you know um, to the early bedtime is without the nap you know the day is long for a little person it is long what time does she get up at (laughs) um so that could be whenever she decides that she has a story to tell or it's breakfast time in her world so typically in and around six in the morning she'll be awake and good to go yeah, Alice, half six. You might get a seven o'clock, might, occasionally. Um, but it's pretty, you could kind of set, like, and we do, we don't even set an alarm in the house anymore. You, you kind of rely to. on her yeah. to wake at half six. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no point. It's so true. Uh, unless you want to get up before her. Um, but generally, yeah, it's half six, unless something has happened in the middle of the night where she's got up and you know, you can't get her back down for a considerable amount of time. Um, But generally it's, yeah, she's about half six, Um, which is fine. You know, I'm okay with that. I think that's a perfect, it's a reasonable hour. It is, it is. We have um, one, you know, slightly different early wake up when a very enthusiastic little voice was telling me, quick, 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 come look, come look. There was a sliver of light coming through a blind and it happened to be orange light because it was the sunrise. And, you know, this was like, it's orange outside. We have to look. So we were all up looking at the sunrise um, just to say, yes, it's an orange sky. That's beautiful. And that was a lot earlier than six o'clock. <laughs> the summertime is definitely harder, I think, to keep them in bed in the morning. It's de- like that light, definitely. And for us, the birds, we've got our, uh, birds, yeah. some big trees near her bed, her window, and they're definitely start early. So it's, yeah, they definitely contribute to her early rise. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. I think that's a, a collective thing. Everybody's experiencing that at the moment. <laughs> And Joanna, you breastfed your daughter for, 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 was it up until she was about two? 
just over two couple, yeah a few months over two uh we did yeah it was actually it was a really nice time I, I feel very privileged to be able to say you know our breastfeeding journey was really straightforward and easy and it just worked and I feel so lucky to be able to say that so you know actually the weaning part was probably the toughest part of the whole process you know being able to say okay it's time and we're done and she was breastfed on demand for that whole time so her her level of feeding you know people say oh by that age they only have one or two feeds a day we didn't find that she was still feeding quite a bit um so the, the weaning was the toughest part but i overall i loved my breastfeeding journey i feel very lucky to have had it and do you, do you think it was difficult for you or for both of you in giving up yeah Yo, I think it was difficult for both of us, actually. And, you know, and there were lots of signs that it was the right time. And lots, you know, I think at a certain point, you just have to make that decision as well, if it's right for you and for your child. But I think, yeah, it took about, oh, I'd say it took us about 12 days for my supply to really, you know, drop down enough for it not to be such an issue. And that was really difficult. It was. And it was about learning a new rhythm, you know, because when you're breastfeeding like that in that way for that long, you really have a very strong physical rhythm and synchrony together. And we had to find a new rhythm and synchrony without that aspect. So, yeah, it was it was difficult, but we did get through it. Yeah, and that I suppose didn't take too long. I'm sure when you're in the in the midst of it, you kind of it probably felt quite overwhelming. But twelve days after such a long journey, know, you know, yeah. it didn't. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't like it didn't go on for months for you to try and wean her off. That she was. No, she obviously I, herself was ready too. I think she was, but I also, you know, found that at a previous attempt that you know this sort of gradually dropping it out really wasn't going to work very well for her, and so we we did just kind of say, look, it's it's done now, and we just went through the kind of difficulty part of that, and it was okay, you know, it is okay that she missed it and she wanted it and she could ask for it and not get it and be upset, and we could get through that, and I think that's just something that's really important in our parenting journey is that we do give our children permission and opportunity to feel upset about things that upset them and then they get to know that as a healthy normal feeling that we can actually be there not to rescue them from every upset but to support them in finding their own way out of it and dealing with it I think I actually think there's a lot of pro-social benefits to that for our children not just around breastfeeding but in general upsets that they might have or things they might find difficult that we we help them to understand that difficult things can be overcome yeah and then you know in reality they are going to even from a quite a young age going into Christchurch for school they will face difficulties um and it's it's great to feel that as a parent that they could cope with that even when you're not there you know that you've you've kind of armored them with the reassurance that they can get through that without you Oh, I think that's so important. And I think it is one of the mistakes we make as parents. And I totally get it. You know, I've been there myself, how hard it is that you just want to jump in and make it better and fix it for them so that they're happy because it's so hard to see your child upset or distressed. But actually, if we rescue them from every little challenge, from every upset or distress that they have, they never learn how to gain mastery over those feelings. And they never gain, you know, really learn that capacity to be able to go, I'm not happy and this doesn't feel right. And 
what am I going to do to make it feel better and how am I going to cope with this and you're right once they go to preschool we won't always be there with them and they do have to be able to do that little piece for themselves it's not to say that we won't talk about it afterwards and what was the best bit of your day and what bit would you like to change and oh and what was that like for you and I wonder what you could do differently you know we can do all of that but we still need to give them that opportunity and your daughter is she's so she's three at the moment so you have obviously you've been working in this area for a number of years um so you were helping parents before you became a parent yourself what led you into that path well, I, you know, my background, as you said at the start, is in psychotherapy, and I primarily worked with, you know, children, adolescents, and when you work with children and adolescents in psychotherapy, you also work with their parents, because, you know, with very rare exception, children aren't bringing themselves to the therapist. A parent is bringing them, and a parent starts that story. And then I, through the course of my work, I really got to see, you know, actually having the parent there as a part of this process is really, really important. And that helped my work to evolve into a more dyadic approach, which is that it's not that the child is your client or the parents your client, but actually it's what we're working on is the relationship between parent and child. So when I was starting my own private practice back in 2010, and I'd spent a number of years working in the charity sector before that in a number of roles. And when I was starting out saying I'm going to do you know, my own business, my own full-time psychotherapy practice, I was really clear in my head I wanted that to be a parent-child relationship clinic. And I, that's what I set up. That's what Sullivan was and is. And I work from pregnancy right the way up to young adulthood. So that's early 20s, really, you know, with young people. I'm also an adult psychotherapist, so I I kind of, my approach is a blended modality of all of those trainings I have. But I think that's been something that's been, you know, really important to me is looking at the relationship between parents and children. Yeah, and something I was reading about um, that you can, you know, a part of what you can help with is actually teaching parents how to help the child to actually learn almost you know to listen and to listen to the parent but also it's actually giving the parent the tools it, it really yeah so I mean like I think one of the most common things as parents that you you have those frustrations is when you know do you know what it comes down to it's like the moment you hear yourself say are you listening to me you know the answer is no, because if they were, you wouldn't have to ask. So I always think as soon as you hear those words, instead of kind of expecting your child to say, because they know the answer to a question like that is yes, but are they listening? No, of course not. But it's actually in that moment that we have to stop ourselves and go, there, it may not be that they're not listening to me. It may be that they're simply not hearing me. And then it's about being curious about why not. If you have a young child and they are absorbed with their play, then frankly, that is far more interesting to them than anything you could be coming in to say, such as put your shoes on, we got to go, get your coat, it's dinner time, come to the table, or whatever instruction we're coming in with. They're absolutely tuning us out. You know, we're the white noise in that situation because they're immersed in their world of play play they are submerged in that play based language and that's really our route in to help them and to reach them is to actually come down to their eye level 
and either do it in a kind of sing-song playful way. I'm always a fan of building rhythm and synchrony into how we engage with our children because rhythm and synchrony trigger those subsystems of the brain associated with regulation. And when they feel you know, regulated, they're going to be better able to connect and be connected by us, with us. So if we come down to their eye level and we take their hands and rub them in circles in our own hands and gently sway those hands back and forth or in a light rhythm, you don't have to be good at singing to have any kind of a rhythm, just sing what you're going to do. You know, it's time to stop, play, play, play. We got to say whatever way you want to do it because as soon as you're doing that sing-song voice, now I'm listening. Now I can hear you because that's playful. And then as they get a bit older, you're going to rely more on those kind of communication strategies that you put in place in early years because you're going to have to grow that up as they grow up and thinking really into that middle childhood stage of 8 to 12 years when some of what you're talking about isn't just put your toys away and come to the dinner table but might be those more difficult conversations when we still need to be able to get heard, be organized and be clear about our messaging because it can be difficult to get heard or communicate through soundproof walls of pre-adolescence. So we have to be creative in how we stay open, connected and in our communication with our kids. But I think it starts really young and then we grow it up with them. Yeah, I mean, I'm listening to you there and I'm, I'm thinking the amount of times we'd say... Um, her Alice's ability to ignore us you know if you're if she's playing or something and you kind of say oh Alice do you want to you know do you want a juice or do you want a drink or and it's there's not even a flinch you know so you know she's she literally has not heard you um but like that she's generally immersed in play it's like you know she's so absorbed with being on her bike or playing with the play-doh or you know and then you you know like that you go over to her and you kind of go are you okay do you want anything or you know um and then she'll kind of look up at you and go oh yeah okay yeah that's it because we're using our words and that's not where they are in their brain like we're using that kind of thinking reflecting neocortex would you like a drink and she's not in that place to be rational and reasonable she's immersed in that you know all of that sensory bath of play you know, the narrative, the story, the touch, the feel, the sounds, the whole piece. That's what's so captivating for them. And that's beautiful. That's exactly what we want with our children. And when you want to then introduce something practical like a drink, one of the you know ways that can achieve that connection and still get your agenda across, which is you could do it a drink right now, is to start by giving the baby doll a drink from the little baby doll bottle or whatever it is and have the baby doll drinking and that might draw her attention over and then we're talking and playing with the baby doll drinking and then you hand her her drink in the play like that and she'll drink it. But you're not pulling her out of play to come do what you need her to do. And how then, so obviously, you know, the aim would be to do this from an early age. But if someone has a child who's maybe kind of approaching that seven, eight age and you're trying to communicate to them, which it can be, you know, they're such formative years and they're, you know, there's so much more immersive distractions for them around gaming, phones, you know, that kind of technology distraction. Yeah. How do you parent them without becoming like a naggy parent? 
Yeah, and I think that's that's such a good question, actually. And I think one of the things that we have to do is try to keep those doors of communication open and be interested in what interests our kids. Like if we start saying, you know, oh, those silly screens or oh, that that silly game that you're playing all those hours, we're really saying that the things that excite and interest you are silly. Maybe I hear that as you think I'm silly. You think all I'm interested in is silly. And that's driving a disconnect. And that's not what is going to help you in your relationship. Maybe it's better to say something in a more reflective way like, you know, I notice how much you really love this game. I'd love to know more about it. Do you think you could teach me how to play it? Or could I just put on a spare headset and listen to you? I won't get in your way, but I would just love to hear how this works when you're playing a game online or when you're engaged with this. And it gives you an insight into what that world is like for them, the effect it has on them. But more than that, they see, oh, you're interested in what interests me. You want to connect with me at my level. And that's a really important piece. I think, of course, you know, parents, we do worry about the screen stuff and we do worry about its effect and how much time. And I think what we want to, to see, and you will see it at this age in particular, this 8 to 12 middle childhood. And, you know, in writing the, the second book, 8 to 12 years, it was really important for me to spotlight this stage of, childhood because it is the most under discussed one we tend to talk a lot about those very important early years and then we tend to catapult forward to the challenging tricky difficult adolescent years and we skip over we short circuit that all-important middle childhood stage when actually so much development happens in middle childhood and it's how they actually are working their way out of that very much early childhood totally dependent on their parents for everything into that place that's beginning to prepare them for being more independent asserting themselves putting themselves out there and doing things for themselves it's in those 8 to 12 years that you gradually begin to see where they have that shift they're moving away from you as the ones that you know you know everything and you're amazing and you're who I go to and that's you're my benchmark for everything and now I'm beginning to prioritize my peer relationships as the thing I want to impress my friends I want to seem a certain way to my friends I want to be perceived in a certain way we also see an increased focus on justice and fairness usually as it applies to them you know like things that I feel very strongly about this is where I get interested in those world topics you know be it climate change or veganism or I, I get really interested and I take a cause and I'm passionate about it and I actually think what you want is to use all of that development to fuel your communication relationship with your child and what we do with that is like we talk often with them to bring out their positive opinions ideas and behaviors you know using positive or affirmative tones and body language ourselves so that we're not waiting for the difficult conversations where we have to go in and say look this isn't okay and you shouldn't be on your your device this long and I noticed that this happened and I'm not happy about it but actually you know we're we're all the time inviting what do you think about this and what's your belief and gosh you feel really strongly about climate change you know what else could we do to support you in this and you're you're always saying I'm interested in talking to you about stuff because then when we need to have those difficult conversations we've already created that baseline where that's what we do we talk about stuff all kinds of stuff but if we only go to them to have those talks when it is the difficult stuff 
that's when it's very difficult to get heard. And do you think, you know, you'd often hear, uh, obviously we're not at that stage of parenting yet, but, you know, you'd hear it anecdotally that, you know, when they get into the car after school, you know, trying to start the conversation then, and almost by the time that you're sitting down to have dinner, that they're kind of full of chat by that point. Or sometimes if they get into the car, you can almost tell they've had a tough day, they're not in the mood for talking. So you kind of let them kind oh, of, I suppose, them, you know, I, unfold I it themselves and then they'll kind of divulge when they're comfortable. And and it might not be in words. And I think, you know, as, as adults, as parents, we do over-rely on that one type of communication, verbal. Tell me how your day was. Tell me what you learned today. Tell me what happened today. And actually, when I've been thinking and talking and answering questions from the adult in charge, my teacher all day, I get into the car and I really don't want to talk. Actually, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want any more questions. And actually, then I can maybe get a bit surly or sulky. And actually, it could be, a, you know, a hotbed of tension between us just at that point of reunification after a prolonged separation of a day in school. And I think, you know, what we do want to do is greet them with respect. If we want them to be respectful back, we have to say, hi, please close the door gently. Thank you for closing, not slamming the door. Thank you for closing it gently. I love you. You know, of course you want to always use that kind of language with them. But I would be saying when they get back in the car and you know, look, as parents, we know by the way they sit down. We know by the type of sigh that's emitted when they get in the car. We know by the the way the door has been closed, what kind of day they've had, or we certainly have an inkling. And it might be more important that we go to a match and regulate game and not say how was your day but play something like jelly and ice cream you know every time you say jelly they have to say ice cream but they have to say it the same way that you do so if they're coming in in low mood and bad form don't come in you know yelling and shouting start with a low jelly you know you might whisper it or say it in a croaky voice or a grumpy voice and they're going to match that with their ice cream and you're going to gradually bring them up go very high bring it back down yell it whisper it you know, using robotic voices, all kinds of voices, and settle in the middle. And what you'll find by the time you get home and pull the car into the driveway is they are co-regulated now with your state of emotional arousal so that by the time you get in the car, get in from the car in the front door, now you're ready to maybe have a think and talk about things. But even then, don't flood them or say that, you know, if you say to your child, how was your day? They're going to say grand, but you're not going to learn anything. Um, if you say what did you do today I don't know nothing the usual you don't get anything out of it if you instead focus on what was the best bit of your day and what bit would you like to change don't do worse bits focus on what bit you wish you could change and then at least you're getting two pieces of tangible information out of them and if you can keep that as a practice in your house when they're teenagers you'll really appreciate getting two bits of information a day And I think it's useful to offer that back to them and say, well, my best bit was whenever. And the bit I wish I could change is also something. And it's tempting to say, oh, the best bit of my day is when I get back with you. But after a couple of days of that, they're going to roll their eyes and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what really was the best bit of your day? So you might want to rephrase that with something like, you know, the best bit of my day was that this important email I was waiting on or this meeting I was in, it ran on time and that meant I could get home to you. But you're giving them something tangible about your life because then we're modeling for them that actually we all have 
highs and lows in our day and the important thing is is that we get through them and we can think and talk about now don't try and fix them if they say gosh I wish this went differently don't go in and go well here's how you fix it just say oh yeah I wonder what you could do about that you know we can just accept and empathize we don't have to come in with our fix or change agenda um, because that can sabotage the connection you talk there about the car behavior and even as adults you know if you've had a long day in the office or you know some days there's a lot of meetings so you as an adult you have taken a lot in and by the time you get to your car at five or six o'clock it's almost like whew, it's it's kind of like you're coming down you're, you're kind of like you get into the car and it's probably the first time maybe you've heard silence all day or um it's the first time you can kind of go okay you know a few seconds to yourself you put on the radio or I would find depending on like how your day went it could be you might feel like listening to chat radio or you might actually need to put on a CD so you kind of like you know listening to you there you definitely forget that really a child is no different to you your day in the office although their days in the classroom there's your both people are, are definitely you know consuming a lot of information throughout the day so how we feel at the end of the day it's probably quite similar to how they can feel at the end of the day as well. And there's something really nice. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are times, you know, usually in the morning, I quite like talk radio, but in the evening, I'm, if my brain is overloaded, it's the worst thing for me. It actually seems to irritate me and make me feel worse. And music is what I should go to. Um, so I think it's the same for our children. And there's also a, a nice opportunity for a moment of meeting so that they kind of get gotten or feel felt by us in the moment of doing rather than saying if you know their favorite song of the moment whatever pop song it is or their favorite pop artist or music artist and you just without saying anything no announcements or questions you just play that song and they can have a little kind of you know rock in the back of the car sway whatever it is you might even low sing it sing it together if that's if that invitation is forthcoming but you know in that they're actually benefiting from that rhythm and synchrony but also in knowing that you've understood what they needed in that moment and you could meet that need for them and that's really good because it's building on that trust-based relationship between us without having opened your mouth or asked a question you've managed that connection and we often underestimate those those gestures those everyday gestures of connection and that's what's so important in the relationship so do you want to play for children it's a way how they can communicate with us and obviously you know with Alice I understand that you've got sensory play and there's developmental play and completely familiar with that form of play and then you know I've heard anecdotally about the ability of like kind of play therapy to get kids to communicate maybe something difficult they're going through and then again you know when they get older I suppose I for someone who has got a, a child so you know so young as Alice the thought of using play as a form of communication tool when they're kind of that eight nine and ten it's kind of hard for me to kind of imagine that you could still use that tool yeah. when you kind of feel like they've outgrown play in a, in the traditional sense that we know of play exactly and that's actually something that does tend to happen is we stop playing with our children at this age um, because their play patterns change and evolve towards that more physical active play 
you know, of bikes and, you know, scooters and all of that stuff, we do tend to forget that they still have sensory needs and that sensory play is still really effective way of getting them out of their heads and down into their bodies in the now moments. And while it might not be, you know, Play-Doh, maybe it's going to be baking. It might not be finger painting, but maybe they'll enjoy making slime and engaging with that. And as they get to that preteen stage, maybe it's becoming more like a mini manicure or a mini pedicure. That's still sensory. And if you're thinking, I can imagine doing that with my daughter, maybe not my son, though I still think plenty of boys will accept that pedicure um, sensory play with you. But if not, you might want to modify that to, you know, playing thumb wrestling, because thumb wrestling, if you do one hand, the other hand, two hands together, you're holding hands for the duration of that play. If you add some lotion onto your hands, you make it more challenging because now it's slippy thumb wrestling, but also you're getting the tactile transfer of the lotion hand to hand and that skin to skin contact. So actually, there are tons of ways that you can keep sensory play active and that we should, because we have to. As, as you said, like, you know, it's hard to think, how can I use it as a communication tool? And yet it remains the most effective communication tool that we have with our kids. So there's a couple of ways to think about playing that. And, you know, some of these you might remember playing yourself as a child to some way. So I'll describe them as I understand them. But you might know, oh, I know that game, but I did it differently. But, you know, the, the kind of sit down game and it works well, you know, if you've got a family or a group of, you know, more than four people, say. And you set a rule that two people must be standing at any one time, but only two people. And these two people can only stand for 20 seconds at a time. So you're increasing the challenge as you go. So if, for example, as a parent, say your mom and your nine-year-old child are the two that are standing, within 20 seconds, you both must sit down. It doesn't have to be at the same time. But as you move to sit down, the others in the group must anticipate your action before you sit and they must stand so that the group always has two people standing. Now that's a really good way of doing that because I have to, everyone has to be watching for each other's nonverbal cues. When are you going to sit? That very small micro muscle bend that cues me you're going to sit and I'm going to stand at the same time. It's a really good way to highlight nonverbal communication, but staying in tune with each other, in sync with each other. And the challenge aspect is what keeps it engaging for the older child. Another one I like is um, like a describe and draw game so that you would take two chairs and have them so that the people in them are sitting back to back, okay? And say person A has an object in their hands and they describe it verbally and person B must try to draw it as they've described it. And at the end, the fun is, what did you draw versus what I'm holding? But both of those activities are really good for building up communication style. And I think that's the piece that we've got to really focus on is actually being creative in how we approach play and playfulness. That play is, it has to be about connection and it has to be about saying, look, I know that I need to build up your communication styles and patterns because that's something that's going to get really difficult in our relationship in these adolescent years ahead when it might become more like we're communicating through those famous soundproof walls and it's not landing as well. But if I can give you lots of those skills now, we have a chance to, to continue that journey into adolescence. So there's tons of games and play like that about really utilizing the environment, outdoors, physicality, and really following what interests your child to show them that you're interested in staying connected with them.
Yeah, and when you said baking there, I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. That's something you could definitely do with that age group that they've been involved. But, you know, it's not yeah. too far removed from them either that they're kind of like, mom, why would I want to do this? Um, and as well, I always think with something like baking, there's oh, a lovely exactly. end product. <laughs> and so the family gets enjoyed and kind of continues that communication. Yeah. Yeah. You've got that sensory activity that results in a nurturing that and you and make it something nice, like make cookies or make brownies or, you know, whatever it is that they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I'd like brownies. That would be quite nice. But they're also contributing towards the family that everybody can benefit from what they're doing. So there's a lovely nurture aspect to that. And it's a very sensory and very regulating thing to do. And a very popular toy with that, eight, the 9, 10, 11, 12 age group would be the quite difficult Lego, that kind of Lego building. Is that, and this was something that a parent can assist with, we're finding the little pieces and stuff like that. Is that a kind of a good game, let's call it, for this kind of building trust and communication? It is. And, you know, especially if it's something that interests your child, I mean, there's two benefits to that. It is something that they can do a bit of independent solo play on. It's something that you could come in and out of. I think what you want to be careful with something like that is that you don't impose the solution from the outset. Here's how we're going to do it. Read the booklet first, put all of the same color pieces in piles that you don't, you know, enforce your way of doing it, but you follow their way of doing it. I think then it can be really, really engaging. Um, and helpful. I think what you're working on there is that there's a lot of sequencing, fine motor skills, there's a lot of problem solving, critical thinking, and by working on it together, you've got that lovely collaborative approach to a challenge activity, which is very similar to when you're doing jigsaw puzzles with younger children. So you get a lot of these same benefits now. And I think if you have a child who's interested in Lego, fantastic. Join them in that. Lego is brilliant. It's a great way of playing and being playful together. So for someone who, you know, has, has a child that, you know, that those kind of pre-teens, the 9, 10, 11, um, and they're thinking about getting your set, your latest book, which, which deals with that age, um, I suppose, what, what expectation or what would you, how would you describe that book to them? As in what would they, you know, what would they take out of it, I suppose? Yeah, so what, what, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So what I'm going to do is make some very light references to the book that came before, because I don't want to assume, like someone who has a nine year old might say, well, look, I don't need the early stuff, but I really need this. So there is going to be some of that groundwork in there, you know, the theoretical framework, you're going to find a lot of focus on risk. And because adolescence is developmentally a phase loaded in risk and risk taking, but it doesn't just begin in adolescence. So there's a whole chapter in there about that, about conducting your own parental risk audit to understand your own relationship to risk. Are you a risk taker? Are you a risk avoider? How does that affect how you parent through risk? And looking at the pro-social benefits as well as the other stuff, and I'll include a whole list of games about how you can play with risk. And we talk a lot in this book, um, I'm really highlighting friendship, because friendship is something that evolves and changes over the course of any of our lives. And my rule of thumb, anyone who's read the first book will remember is, with very rare exception, stay out of your kids' friendships, let them work it out, because they will. And they'll find who's like them, who's not. And there's a process of rediscovery around that now as they're gaining a deeper understanding of who they are. Like one of the things you see in this stage of development is your 8 to 12 year old really oscillates between extreme self-confidence, like they're omnipotent and could rule the world, 
and then extreme self-doubt oh my goodness I'm, I'm rubbish nobody would want to be my friend why would anyone want to be with me so it's really about looking at how this plays out in their friendships but there is a whole lot going on there looking again at some sibling relationships and what happens in middle childhood and I focus quite a bit on those difficult conversations because that's what you're beginning now to get that groundwork for the later years so talking about the tricky stuff you know everything from you know video gaming screens from death breaking news of a relationship ending um, anything about you know talking about sex talking about when the magic starts to the magical belief system starts to change a bit in this age and how to you know how to demystify the myth but keep magic alive for our kids at this age and that's a fine line but it is possible to do that and you know we talk a lot about building resilience and self-esteem um, as well so there's a whole lot about handling handling the difficult stuff the difficult conversations and the difficult behaviors if they lie if they steal if if they do all of these things that you think gosh my child would never do that and suddenly you think oh they have um, if your child is bullied or if your child is the bully and looking really at risk and resilience so there's a whole lot in there but throughout that it's peppered with opportunities to pause and self-reflect on what those stages mean to you, both when you were a child and now as parenting a child at that age, and also the games that are going to get you through it to keep that playful connection alive. Actually, on the podcast, I recorded with Emer Hutchinson. She's got four girls and we were talking about the, the what stages in, I suppose, in the girls, you know, growing. Um, the chief find the most difficult and it's it's actually now when I'm listening to you go through those different scenarios it was like that friendship you know if they come and there's a you know in that you get that the kind of this happened at school and she said this and he said that and she was like it's actually so difficult you know to to help them through it without you know influencing it too yes. much um, and I think we all I think that age group is quite difficult because I think we all remember it from our own childhood um and how do you parent through it? So it just sounds, it sounds like the type of book that you okay. kind of say to yourself Absolutely. that this, I wish there was a handbook that would help me through this. And now there is. So um, I'm sure there's going to be many a parent. You know, it um, is, it, as I said, you know, it's, it, it, this is why I really wanted to focus on this age group because it gets so overlooked in all of the parenting kind of discussions and conversations. And it is such a challenging time for a child but also a parent and so much change you know hormonally you know psychologically physiologically neurobiologically there's so much change going on and we have to get in there and be a part of that to enable them finding their way through that process of change so that they can assume their adolescent selves setting them up as well you know to kind of blossom into young adolescents yeah absolutely and we're preparing to grow our own parenting up as well you know, I think that's important. Like you can feel like such a successful parent when you've got the little one. And then along comes that, you know, nine or 10 year old who's just going to make you doubt everything you thought you knew. And you're going, how, how this worked when you were six. And actually it's incumbent on us as our children move through these parenting stages that we grow our parenting up in line with them. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's definitely an age group where, I suppose as a parent I kind of go oh my god I can't imagine myself being parenting a child that age that's slightly terrifying <laughs> but feeling feeling somewhat reassured now having <laughs> chatted to you that there it will be okay and um you know we'll come out the other side of it and we'll phase into 
Jung adolescents yeah, you're and getting um, each other through us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it is that time in the episode I have to ask you qu- three questions. Um, Joanna, what would you tell your yeah. pregnant self? <laughs> what would I tell my pregnant self? Well, I would probably tell my pregnant self that you can never buy too many maternity pads. <laughs> something really practical (laughs) that's very true it's so true it is so true it's not sad enough (laughs) and what one product could you not live without oh gosh if you'd asked me that before children it would be a different answer but now I have to say my enamel coffee cup because it keeps coffee hot for four hours and as a parent of a young child that is that's essential because at least you feel you've got some cup of hot coffee in your day without having to keep putting it into the microwave to heat it up. So yeah, I'm going to go with my enamel coffee cup. Good answer. I like that one. And what has been your magic moment? <laughs> ah, so, do you know, I feel, I'm so lucky to be able to say I've had so many magic moments along the way. And sometimes they don't feel magic at the time. It's almost in retrospect, but I think it's got to be, you know, recently unboxing uh, my two books, unboxing the delivery from my publisher of those books and just opening that and going, oh my goodness, I did that. I wrote these. Um, That was a really magic moment. It's like, it's, you know, this is it. This is where it all lives now is, is in the pages of these books. And that's, that's amazing, but it's also quite overwhelming uh, in the best possible way. So I, I really think that was a moment of true magic, you know, when you have those kind of butterflies and you just can't stop smiling and you're going, yeah, that's it. That means a lot. Brilliant. Joanna, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And I think there's so much valuable information for parents of young and small kids. And as they progress along, even telling us information now to prepare ourselves for down the road is invaluable. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening to today's episode of From Unkind. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review and subscribe. If you would like to send me a message, please email fromunkind at gmail.com or find me on Instagram. And see you on the next episode of the podcast.